Matthew writes his gospel narrative as an apologetic to prove that Jesus is the messianic king who will establish his kingdom on earth. In the first chapter, Matthew presents the messianic chronicle. The chronicle establishes Jesus' messiahship and kingship by demonstrating how he is the promised son, the promised seed of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. Matthew also presents the messianic confirmation in chapter 1. Jesus' messianic kingship is confirmed by two signs, the sign of the virgin birth and the sign of the prophetic name. In the second chapter, Matthew presents the messianic certification. Jesus' messianic kingship is certified by the star, the city, and the magi. The star was the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God in the form of light. The city of Bethlehem was prepared, planned, and prophesied by God as the very place of the Messiah's birth. And the Magi spent roughly a thousand years searching for the one who would be born king of the Jews. And these men came looking and found the one who fulfilled all prophetic texts that they had spent a lifetime studying. Matthew concludes the second chapter by introducing the messianic crisis. The entrance of the messianic king, though, could not be deterred. Nevertheless, Satan attempted to derail his entrance into the world. He created a threefold crisis. Herod's threat, the massacre of the children, and Archelaus' threat. And yet, they could not deter the Messiah's entrance into the world. Instead, those three crises displayed God's providence in controlling and directing the events surrounding the Messiah's entrance, the king's entrance into the world. Now, between the king's birth narrative in chapters 1 and 2 and his first recorded sermon in chapter 5, Matthew presents the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In these two chapters... Chapters 3 and 4. He highlights the king's baptism and temptation. Matthew also reveals Jesus' preaching and teaching methods, as well as his itinerant ministry. And as, as Matthew transitions from the birth narrative, he moves forward 30 years in time and introduces us to John the baptizer. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he presents John preparing the way for Jesus. Preparing the way for Jesus. Now, John prepares the way for both Jesus' message and Jesus' ministry. And so we're going to take our text this morning, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see how John prepared the way for Jesus' message. And then in verses 7 through 12, how John prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. Now in verses 1 through 6, John prepared the way for Jesus' message by laying out four things about John. We're going to see John's directive. We're going to see John's dress and diet. We're going to see John's decree. And we're going to see John's duty. And these four things about John prepared the way for Jesus' message. Let's begin with John's directive. John's directive prepares the way for Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. Verse 1. Now in those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Notice the opening phrase. In those days, John the Baptist came. Matthew uses his phrases to indicate a significant shift in time. Mainly those days refer to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. John or Johannan translates as Yahweh is gracious. John the baptizer had a tremendous responsibility to prepare the world for Jesus, the manifestation of God's grace. Now Matthew says nothing of John's background. He just jumps 30 years and plops him on the scene. But Luke provides several details that I'd like to overview. In Luke 1 and verse 6, it says that John's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both righteous in the sight of the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, this couple was unable to conceive, and so they prayed for a son. One day an angel appeared, revealing, Congratulations, you're going to have a son. The angel said in Luke 1, 15 and 17, regarding the son, your son will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. He is going to go forth as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And forth he's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we had four facts about John. Great in the sight of the Lord. Filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. By the way, I have to take an aside here. Okay. While he was yet a fetus in his mother's womb, he was still what? A legitimate human being. He wasn't a clump of cells. The Holy Spirit fills people, not clumps of cells. Okay? Now, he's great. He's filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in his mother's womb. Number four, he's going to be a forerunner of the Lord. In the spirit and power of Elijah. And number four, he's going to make the people prepared for the Lord's coming. Matthew explains that John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The word came, paragenomai, denotes the arrival of an official. The word, so he comes on official business. And then his business is preaching. The word preaching here, keruso. It means to be a herald or to proclaim a message. Putting together those two words, came preaching, tells us what his official task was. He was a herald. He was a proclaimer. In fact, in the ancient Near East, if a king was going to come to town, he would send his herald before him, who would prepare the way. He oversaw all the preparation for the king's arrival. Those preparations included removing litter and repairing the roadways. And as the herald led the workers along the road, he'd make an announcement. The king is coming. And so like the herald, John prepared the people for the messianic king's coming. He says in John 1.23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John saw himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And besides John acknowledging himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse 3, 
Matthew also does. Notice again in verse 3, Matthew writes, John is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, make ready, hetoimazo, is a word, is a verb that means to prepare, to make preparation. And the, what the preparation involves making the roads straight. Straight, euthus, means to make something level or smooth. So, just as the herald would arrive before the king, make the announcement, and ensure that the roads were prepared, the roads were level and straight, so John, as a herald of King Jesus, is going to level and smooth the road. Except, it's not a physical road in this case, but a metaphorical road. John is going to literally prepare the road into the hearts of people to make them receptive to the Lord and his message. Now, why did John herald the news in the wilderness? Well, as already disclosed, Isaiah prophesied that's where he would do it. Okay, So he must do it in the wilderness. By serving in the wilderness, though, he identifies himself with the Lord in a very unique way. Yahweh promised in the Hebrew prophets that, it, that he would lead Israel into the wilderness prior to their restoration. Now Hosea chapter 2, 14 and 16, the prophet says, Behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, speak kindly to her, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, or husband, and you will no longer call me Bali, or master. So John's wilderness ministry, announcing Jesus' coming, is the beginning of Israel's restoration. So they're looking. If the Messiah is going to come, where is he coming? In the wilderness. Where's John? In the wilderness. So his ministry, his directive, pointed to Jesus. Verse 4. John's dress and diet also prepared the way for Jesus' message. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. Now the garment of camel's hair and leather belt is, uh, is a very important statement. Because his clothes identified him as a what? As a prophet. He's a prophet. Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 that he is a hairy man with a leather girdle around his loins. Now that doesn't mean that Elijah was hairy. The word there hairy is implying he was wearing a what? A skin, an animal skin, a hairy, or it could have probably been camel, but a hairy coat of whatever, animal flesh. And it was a, a belt cinched it around his waist. That was the normal dress code for the prophet. Okay? In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 4, it says, It will come about in that day that the prophets will be ashamed of his vision, when he prophesies, and they'll not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. In other words, what happens in Zechariah is that Yahweh forbids the false prophets from wearing the hairy robe of the genuine prophet. So a genuine prophet from God would show up 
in a, in a camel hair skinned robe with a leather belt around his waist. There was no question who this guy was. Locust, one of the few insects Israelites were allowed to eat. Standard meal, by the way, for surviving in the wilderness. He likely roasted his locusts, pulled off the wings, dipped them in honey, make them edible. Why such a diet? Well, his diet was a symbol of poverty, pointing to the spiritual poverty of the people and their need for repentance. His dress and his diet were also a protest against the religious establishment and their selfishness and self-indulgence. Remember, this was a guy who grew up in the house of a priest. So to leave Jerusalem, go out in the wilderness, go out into obscurity, and wear the skin, skins and the leather belt of the prophet, and to eat in poverty, was a clear denunciation against the religious establishment. Now verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's decree in Matthew 3, 2, prepared the way for Jesus' message. Now, Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 77, Zechariah makes a prophecy about this son of his. He says, you child, now understand, he's an infant. He has no idea what his father just said. Okay, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of Elohim, you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And indeed, Matthew now reports that John was decreeing the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins. He decrees, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message was soteriological and it was eschatological. Soteriologically, the call to repent was a call to salvation. Eschatologically, the call was an announcement announcing the coming of the kingdom of God in fulfillment of the Hebrew prophets. Let's look at that word repent for a moment. Metanao. The word there implies a change of attitude and action. Two Hebrew terms are rendered by this term, and they are nakam and shub. Now, nakam means to change your mind. Shub means to turn or convert. And so putting this together, we understand that repentance is a conversion. Conversion is a radical change of mind and heart that leads to a complete turnabout of life. According to Lau and Nita's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, commanding people to repent is commanding them to change their way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So repentance involves confessing and forsaking sin. It is turning from your sin and turning to God. Now the idea of repentance representing this turn from sin and turn to God is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. Listen to the words, the command of Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 22. He says, turn to me, turn to me, 
and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 55 and verse 7, Yahweh says, Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord. Jeremiah 18 11, God says, Turn back, each of you, from your evil ways. Reform your ways and your deeds. Jeremiah writes in Lamentation chapter 3 and verse 40, Let's examine and probe our ways, and let us return. To the Lord. God demands in Ezekiel 14.6. Repent and turn away from your idols. And turn your face away from all your abominations. That's probably the clearest definition in the Old Testament. Repent. What is that? Turning away from your idols. Turning away from your abominations. If I'm turning from them, I'm turning to God. So genuine repentance begins with sorrow over sin. But... Let's remember, not all sorrow leads to genuine repentance. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, that is a great explanation of Judas and Peter. Sometimes sorrow leads to regret. Sometimes sorrow leads to remorse. For example, Judas's sorrow birthed regret that resulted in death. But Peter's sorrow birthed remorse resulting in change. He spent one night in the high priest's courtyard as a coward denying Jesus. But 50 days later, in the courtyard of the temple, he was courageous, boldly proclaiming Jesus. There was a turnaround. There was a, there was a change from Captain Coward to Captain Courageous. So John prepared the way for Jesus' message. What was Jesus' message? Well, according to Mark 1.15, Jesus proclaimed, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After Jesus commissioned the twelve in Mark 6.12, they went out and preached that men should what? Repent. Ten days after Jesus' ascension, in Acts 2.38, Peter stood up at the temple and preached, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Weeks later, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter again preached the same message. Repent and return so that your sins might be wiped away. Decades later, some three decades later, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, Paul's preaching to the Ephesian believers. And he says that I came to preach both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20, Peter, or, or Paul rather, is there and uh, in court testifying and he says that he came and preached to Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. John prepared the way for the message. Jesus preached the message and his followers are to continue doing the same. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, that message contains a twofold command. There's the command to repent. 
Repenting again is confessing and forsaking your sin and turning to God. You must repent of your sin. Why? Because sin has created a conflict between you and God. And because of that, you and I are damned to the lake of fire. But, but God provided Jesus His Son as a Savior. Which brings us to the second command of that message. And that is to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus, as the Savior, died, shed His blood to atone for sin. God the Father accepted that sacrifice and raised Him from the dead. And friends, when you and I repent of our sin, when we put our faith, our belief in Jesus, the Son of God, died, buried, rose again, we're saved. The people of John's day needed to do just that. They needed to repent of their sin. They needed to be converted. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. At hand in Gizo. It's approaching. It's near. It's getting closer. Again, I've said this before. I'm going to hammer it home until we're done in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. Remember, the Jewish people don't use the name God except when they're in the temple. Uh, here's an interesting record. In the Talmud, it says, In the sanctuary we may say the name as it is written. So you can say Yahweh in the temple. But in the provinces, outside the temple, in the land, you used a euphemism. So they, they replaced God with heaven so as not to be guilty of Violating the holiness of God's name. And Matthew respectfully follows that pattern as a Jew himself. But also he's writing to the Jews and doesn't want to be a stumbling block. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Refers primarily to God's sovereign eternal rule over everything. The universe. Psalm 145.13 David said your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. But more specifically... When applied to people, and applied to you and I, the kingdom refers to God's rule over us, His people, who are submitting to His authority. And the only way to get into God's kingdom is when we repent and believe the gospel. That's the key that unlocks the door. Now, verse 5 and 6. John's duty. His duty, not just his decree and not just his diet and dress and, and so forth, but his duty prepared the way for Jesus' message in verse 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Notice the response to John's dress, diet, and decree. Jerusalem was going out and Judea, and all the district around Jordan. What's Jerusalem? It's the city of the people. Or the people, rather, of the city. Okay? Judea is the people living in the surrounding province, and the district around Jordan means people living on both sides of the Jordan River. They were traveling far and wide to come and see and hear this prophet. Matthew 21, verse 26, Matthew says that all the people regarded John as a prophet. 
He dressed like a prophet. He ate like a prophet. He spoke like a prophet. And after 400 years of silence from heaven, God has sent a prophet to speak to his people. They want to come out and see and hear him. And they're coming not just to see and hear, but to what? Be baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now back in verse 1, Matthew introduced John as the Baptist. Folks, I got to tell you, that title doesn't mean he was the founder of the Baptist church. Okay? John was not a Baptist. Okay? Not a Baptist. The first Baptist church was not created until the 1600s in Holland. Okay? So this is a few hundred years before that. About 1600 years before that. So the title Baptist derives from the Greek term baptistes, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word tavala. Tavala means immersion. Immersion. So John was an immerser. He was someone dipping people in water. Now, we also have the verbal form here of baptistes when they came to be baptized, to be baptizo. The people came to the immerser to be immersed in water, specifically the Jordan. Now, the word baptizo comes from the dyeing industry. Okay, What do I mean by dyeing? I'm talking about taking pieces of fabric and dyeing them. Now, a piece of fabric, usually some kind of an animal skin or maybe woven cloth of some kind, uh, was usually off-white or beige. So they would take the cloth, they would immerse it or dip it into a vat of dye to color it. And it would be known as that color. For example, Acts 16.1, Paul meets Lydia, who is what? A seller of purple. Purple what? Purple fabric. Fabric that had been dyed purple. So baptism is not only an immersion, baptism is an identification. When you're baptized, you're identified with something. That cloth's identified with the color which it was dyed. Now, in terms of Judaism, there are three primary reasons why someone would be baptized. Yes, baptism is as old as the Old Testament. Okay? First, Jewish people were baptized as an outward sign of their repentance. So repentance is the first reason someone would be baptized. Following the Feast of Trumpets, which Rosh Hashanah occurs around September sometime, the Jewish people would have seven days to repent of their sin in preparation for the Day of Atonement. As part of that preparation, the repentant individual would go to the priest and be baptized at a mikveh, or a pool of water. Second reason for baptism is for cleansing from physical illness, bodily discharges of some kind. Leviticus 16.13, when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, he shall count off seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, and will become clean. Remember Naaman the Syrian wanted to be healed from leprosy? Elisha commands him to go and immerse himself seven times, bathe yourself, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Listen to 2 Kings 5.14. Naaman went down and what? Tavalad. Immersed himself, dipped himself, baptized himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So we've got repentance, we've got cleansing. Here's the third. 
The third reason for baptism in Judaism was for identification. Now a Gentile who would convert to Judaism was to be baptized as a sign of cleansing from paganism, but now identifying with the people of God. In Acts chapter 8, you'll recall Philip met an Ethiopian returning from worship in Jerusalem. Now, Ethiopian man is a Gentile, but he's worshiping in Jerusalem, which means at some point he had been baptized and identified with Judaism. He's reading Isaiah 53. Philip begins preaching the gospel to him from Isaiah 53. Having heard the gospel, desiring to identify with Jesus, he asks, the Ethiopian says, there is water, Acts 8.36, what prevents me from being what? Baptized. What prevents me from identifying with Jesus? His desire to be baptized was an omission of a desire to convert and identify with Jesus. And of course, what did Philip reply? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew reports that John baptized those who came to him as they confessed their sins. So this is primarily a baptism of what? Repentance. The word confessed, exomologio, means to acknowledge sin and agree with God about sin. You know, it's not just enough to say, yeah, that's a sin. You've got to agree with God about that sin. The people coming to John acknowledged their sin. They agreed with God about their sin. And when they were baptized, they were publicly declaring their conversion that they had turned from sin and turned to God. They said, my old life is dead. I'm starting a new sanctified life. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus commands all believers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, the New Testament knows nothing of a believer who is not baptized. You became a believer, you got baptized. That was just the way it was. That's what he commanded. People were immediately baptized when they repented and believed the gospel. No one in the New Testament era was baptized who did not repent of their sin and believe the gospel. That's why we don't believe in infant baptism. Okay? Because infants cannot understand that they're sinners. They cannot acknowledge their sin. They cannot agree with God about their sin. They cannot believe the gospel. They, they haven't arrived at that point yet. Now folks, the baptism of believers means the same thing today that it meant to the Jews and John the Baptist. It still demonstrates repentance, cleansing, and identification. You see friends, when you and I are baptized, we proclaimed our repentance and cleansing from sin. The baptismal waters did not cleanse us, but it symbolized the regenerative and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of our good deeds, which we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it, baptism, again, Repentance, cleansing, but it also identifies us with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection. When that individual is immersed into the water, they're identifying with Jesus' death. They're saying their old sinful life is crucified with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too will we walk in the newness of life. So when that individual is raised up out of the water, they're signifying that they're now risen with Christ. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the work of God, who raised him from the dead. 
So ladies and gentlemen, John's directive, diet, address, decree, and duty all prepared the way for Jesus' message. But next, John prepares the way for Jesus' ministry in verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, You brood of vipers! He probably had been canceled. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he'll gather his wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John prepares the way for Jesus' ministry. Now notice, John sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. Now the Pharisees are descendants of the Hasidim, the pious ones, who had fought against the Seleucids back in the Maccabean Revolt. They're dedicated to the interpretation and teaching of the Torah. Their teachings are referred to as Ural Torah, the traditions of men. The Sadducees were descendants of Zadok, the high priest, who served during the reigns of David and Solomon. These were the money changers in the temple who were charging exorbitant fees for sacrifices. They were extremely wealthy. Now, philosophically, the Pharisees were legalistic. The Sadducees were liberal. They were philosophically opposed, but they agreed on one thing, their hatred of Jesus. So the Pharisees and Sadducees claim they're coming to be baptized. John is not convinced and he refuses to baptize them and attacks the religious veneer. You brood of vipers. Now we're brood. Ganema. You offspring, you children of vipers. Now a viper, an echidna, is a venomous desert snake. Extremely dangerous because they look like a dead branch. Like a viper, the Pharisees and Sadducees were also dangerous. They appeared as one thing when they were something altogether different. They were hypocrites. Instead of directing people to God, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 13, they're shutting off the kingdom of heaven from people. They're not entering it, nor are they allowing anyone else to enter into the kingdom of God. And when he referred to them as children of vipers, he's basically saying, you're like your father the devil, the original serpent in the garden. Then John asks, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, after the harvest season, farmers would burn the brush in their fields. And the fire would cause vipers and other snakes in the field to flee. Folks, repentance from sin is the means to enter God's kingdom, but it also is the means to escape the fiery judgment of the lake of fire. These religious leaders came to John for baptism, seeking a way to escape fiery divine judgment. See, they viewed salvation as something based on works, not faith. They saw John's baptism as a way to earn their salvation, not as a work that demonstrated the genuineness of their salvation. They want fire insurance, that's it. 
And knowing their motives are insincere, John rebukes them and says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, John says, listen, you claim you're coming to me, you're claiming you're repenting of your sin, where's your evidence? Where's your proof? Where's your works? Where's your fruit? Folks, genuine repentance is not simply being sorrow over sin, it's changing your mind and life regarding sin. Paul says in Acts 26 verse 20, repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Now what deeds are they? What type of fruit, what type of deeds does repentance produce? Well, we could preach a whole message on that. But if we look at the corollary passage in Luke chapter 3, John gives a few examples because he's asked, well, what are these deeds of repentance? And in Luke chapter 3 verse 11 to 14, he answered starting with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. If you've got food, share it with the guy who has none. The tax collectors came to be baptized. They said, well, what are we supposed to do? He says to them, collect no more what you have than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers came and said, well, what deeds are we supposed to demonstrate? He says to them, don't take money from anyone by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. So what we immediately see here is John explaining that the initial fruits, the initial deeds, works of repentance are these. Generosity towards those in need, honesty in business, treating others equitably, not making false accusations, and controlling your greed. In other words, how you treat someone speaks volumes about their repentance from sin in relationship with God. Yahweh says something similar in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove ruthlessness. Defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now, before the Pharisees and Sadducees can reply, John cuts them off. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. He already knew they didn't have any deeds of repentance. And he also knew that they were going to deflect to their heritage. See, they had this view that hereditary would save them. But John clarifies, listen, being related to Abraham doesn't, clear, doesn't guarantee you salvation or a place in God's kingdom. I say to you that these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, there's a bit of wordplay here, by the way. In Aramaic, the word stone is abneya, and the word children is banaya. Okay? So, same word, just adding one letter. So, it's a little wordplay. But, here's something interesting. Where are they being baptized? The Jordan River. Okay? Joshua chapter 4. Joshua takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and places them in the middle of the Jordan River as a testimony to the day that Israel crossed the river on dry land. John points to those stones and said, it is more probable for those stones in the Jordan River to be redeemed than any Jewish person being redeemed because of their relationship to Abraham. That's pretty neat. They had no fruit demonstrating their repentance. They're like dead trees destined for the fire. He says, he says to them, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. And that's exactly what happens after every harvest season. The farmer goes out through his vineyard, through his orchards, cuts down every tree that produces no fruit. And once the tree is cut, it's cast into the fire. John draws his parable from Jeremiah eleven sixteen. 16. 
The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. But with the noise of a great tumult, he kindled a fire on it, and its branches are worthless. Laying an axe at the root of the tree is a symbol of judgment. Fire represents hell and the lake of fire. John is warning these religious leaders that judgment is already, it's presently happening, and they need to repent before it's too late. Because once the unrepentant die, they are cut off from this life. They have no hope of ever being redeemed. They will be immediately cast into hell to await final judgment in the lake of fire. Jesus confirms this in John 15, 16. If anyone does not abide in me, he will be thrown away as a branch and dry up, and they will be gathered and cast into the fire, and they will be burned. Now comes the preparation for Jesus' ministry. John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He baptizes for repentance of sin, but somebody mightier, someone who has more authority than him is coming. Now, if John's the herald of the king, the only person mightier than John is who? The king. King Jesus. He says, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. During the first century A.D., you know what slaves were responsible for? Taking off their master's sandals and washing their feet. I'm not worthy to wash his feet. John says when he comes, he's going to, here's the ministry of the Messiah. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, Jesus has a baptismal ministry just like John. But he did not baptize with water. Only the Holy Spirit and fire. During his entire three-year ministry, he baptized not one person. John continued baptizing with water. Jesus' disciples baptized with water. But listen to the words of Jesus in Acts 1.5. John baptized with water. You are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, being baptized with the Spirit is an immersion whereby the Holy Spirit immerses you into the body of Christ, the universal church. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we're all made to drink one Spirit. So regardless of your ethnicity, your biological sex, your economic status, you're all baptized into Christ. Now, what of this other aspect of Jesus' baptismal ministry? What does he mean by Jesus will baptize with fire? Now, we already saw fire is a symbol of judgment. In verse 12, fire again is going to be a symbol of judgment. There's nothing here to indicate that John is changing the meaning of the symbol. So Jesus began baptizing with the Spirit following his ascension into heaven. But there's also going to be a baptism of fire or a baptism of judgment. When will that baptism with fire, when will that judgment begin? Well, John uses a parable to answer that question. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn. He's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We've got a parable drawn from agriculture again. The farmer harvests the wheat grain, brings it to the threshing floor. The oxen crush the grain, separating the kernel from the chaff. Then he uses a winnowing fork, a patuan, a pitchfork basically, to throw the grain in the air where the wind blows the chaff away leaving only the grain kernels behind. John's alluding to, Matthew, to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. The arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day is coming when they will be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So, that is, so this, is the, that this is will leave them neither 
root nor branch. You see, in John's parable, the farmer is Jesus, the threshing floor is the place of judgment, the wheat, again, represents the regenerated, the repentant, the chaff represents the unrepentant or the unregenerated, the barn is the heavenly kingdom, the unquenchable fire is hell and the lake of fire. So when Jesus comes as king the second time, he's going to separate the repentant from the unrepentant. He's going to put the repentant in heaven. He's going to cast the unrepentant into hell temporarily until they're ultimately in the lake of fire. My friends, is the same truth Jesus taught in the parable of the wheat and weeds, Matthew 13, 26 to 43. The dragnet, Matthew 13, 47 to 50. And the sheep and goats, Matthew 25, 46. So John is the herald. He's preparing the way for Jesus the king. Jesus is coming as savior and as judge. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit represents the salvation ministry of Jesus associated with his first coming. Every one of you, from the moment you were saved, you were baptized with the Spirit. You were placed into union into the body of Christ. Baptizing with fire represents the judgment ministry of Jesus associated with his second coming. So in preparing the way for Jesus, we have John as an obedient, spirit-filled, humble, evangelistic servant of God. And believers, you and I need to consider if we're like John. Because we're also preparing the way for the king to come. He prepared for his first coming, we're preparing for the second coming. John obeyed his calling, he prepared hearts for Jesus. How about you? Are you obedient to your calling? Are you preparing hearts for Jesus? John was spirit-filled. Everything he did was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit? Listen, friends, that's the only thing you're commanded to do with the Holy Spirit. He does everything else for you, but you're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And every time you sin, guess what? You lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit's filling because of sin in your life, guess what? He's not leading you. He's not guiding you. You're aimlessly going about fulfilling your selfish desires like the Pharisees and Sadducees. John was humble. John served the Lord in an obscure locale. Are you that humble? Are you genuinely humble? You know, are you satisfied serving when you don't get any attention, any glamour, any applause? How do you react when others get the preeminence? And finally, John was evangelistic. He boldly proclaimed Jesus and his message to repent and believe the gospel. Are we evangelistic? When was the last time you shared the gospel? Who was the last person that you told about Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, he's saying that John's privilege was great. He got to prepare the way for the Lord. But today, you and I have a greater privilege. Because we've been welcomed into the kingdom. So friends, believers, what are you going to do with that great privilege? My challenge for you is this. Be like John. You want to be great? Be like John. Be obedient. Be spirit-filled. Be humble. Be evangelistic. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to you with praise upon our lips. We come to you rejoicing for what you have done. Somewhere in eternity past, you created a plan for redemption, a plan to redeem us. 
And part of that plan was appointing a forerunner, appointing a herald who would prepare the way for your son, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who would come and remove the enmity between us. And Father, I thank you that we've had the opportunity to study a little bit about John and his ministry. To, to see the type of man that John was. Called great by you. Father, we want to be great. We want to be great like John. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to, like John, be obedient, be spirit-filled, be humble, and be evangelistic. Father, forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for our arrogance and pride. Forgive us for... Uh, quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for saying nothing and remaining silent about your Son. And Father, may the Spirit who indwells us move upon us. Give us no peace until we step up and begin preparing the way. John prepared the way for Jesus the first time. We have the privilege of preparing for his second coming. And Father, find us faithful to that end. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.